0: Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, I'm going to chat with four physicists at the University of Birmingham about how they have taken a quantum gas of cold atoms out of the lab and used it to detect a tunnel beneath the university campus. But first, I'm joined by my Physics World colleague, Margaret Harris, to talk about what's new in physics this week. Hi, Margaret. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. And so, Margaret, I understand that researchers in the Netherlands and the U.S. have shown for the first time that qubits, which are the building blocks of quantum computers, can be mass-produced using the standard processes that have been developed for manufacturing conventional integrated circuits. Now, this sounds like a big deal. Why is this important?
1: Well... As regular listeners of the podcast know, the quantum computers that we've got at the moment have two major problems. They're vulnerable to errors from noise, and they're not very big. That is, they don't have that many qubits. They're what's called NISC, or noisy intermediate scale quantum devices. So one of the reasons, I mean, not the only reason, but one of the reasons these NISC machines don't have that many qubits is that manufactured qubits, as opposed to qubits made from Cold atoms or cold ions, uh, they're kind of actually hard to make. Uh, it's a laboratory based process. You're making the qubits either individually or in small batches, and the yield isn't great. And by that I mean that a relatively high fraction of the qubits you attempt to make end up not passing the tests designed to show whether they actually work. That's what yield is. Um, so, what these researchers at QTECH, which is a Dutch collaboration, and the US computer chip making giant Intel, what they did is to piggyback on the massive manufacturing know-how that's gone into the conventional semiconductor chip industry. And they used that to make qubits out of silicon, which is of course the same material used to make computer chips.
0: And, and so what, what kind of qubits did they make? How, how, how do these qubits store quantum information?
1: Well, the qubits in this case are made out of quantum dots, which are nanoscale clusters of semiconductor particles, such as silicon. And these uh, clusters behave kind of like atoms in the sense that they have discrete quantized electronic states. And that means these quantum dots can undergo transitions between these states and can exist in quantum superpositions of two different states, which is what you need for a qubit. They're sometimes called silicon spin qubits because they work by controlling the spin of the charge carriers in this semiconducting material, which are the electrons and holes
0: and And so, has this scaling problem the problem of of not being able to mass produce uh, qubits has it been solved now? is Is this process going to be used to make huge quantum computers with thousands or even millions of qubits?
1: Yeah, I think it could be, um, but the scaling problem itself has has more components than just making lots of qubits um, and the researchers definitely did make a lot of qubits this Intel's state-of-the-art optical lithography process meant they could fit 10,000 qubit arrays on just one 300 millimeter silicon wafer. But there's still some big challenges remaining in terms of connecting and and controlling all those qubits. And once you get to have really large numbers of qubits, you have to worry about some associated challenges like how to dissipate the heat from the control electronics or the qubits themselves. Um, silicon spin qubits need temperatures between 1 and 4 Kelvin above absolute zero to function. And that's actually relatively high as qubits go. So it's easy to say, and and some physicists do say this, that these are just sort of engineering challenges, but they're important and difficult challenges all the same.
0: So, So an important milestone, but lots more work to be done. Definitely. You can read more about this on the Physics World website just look for the headline silicon spin qubits manufactured on an industrial scale and margaret you also want to talk about a new type of solar cell that can cope with heat and damp and and why is this news i mean i would have thought that any solar cell that you'd put on your roof or out in a field would have to cope with environmental factors like heat and 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 rain um it, Why is this a problem?
1: Well, yeah, okay, so the silicon-based solar cells that most listeners are familiar with are indeed good at dealing with sunlight and rain. They're expected to handle that kind of weather throughout their lifetime of 25 to 30 years. But while silicon solar cells perform well in that sense, and they've had lots of refinements over the years, actually, in fact, they've benefited from some of the same materials processing techniques used in silicon computer chips that we were talking about just now, Silicon cells do have this Achilles heel, which is that silicon as a material is actually not that great at absorbing sunlight and turning it into electricity, which is a really big drawback for a solar panel. I think you have to agree. Um, Basically, the the silicon has a band gap in the wrong part of the visible spectrum. So the power conversion efficiency of silicon solar cells is around 20% or a little above it. And there's some other drawbacks as well, like the cost of the materials and the thickness you need to get that 20% efficiency. So for these reasons, people have looked for more efficient photovoltaic materials, and they found them in the form of a mineral called a perovskite.
0: Uh, That's our favorite material, isn't it?
1: Oh, yeah, one of our favorite materials. It keeps coming back almost as often as silicon, in fact. (laughs) Um, So perovskites are promising candidates for thin film solar cells because they can absorb light over a broad range of wavelengths that are in the sun's um, spectrum. But they have an Achilles heel, too, and that is that they suffer from surface defects and also a phenomenon called ion migration, which does exactly what it sounds. Ions within the perovskite crystal move around, and the structure of the molecule changes as a result. And that makes them unstable, and the instabilities actually get worse if there's water present or the temperature goes up.
0: Right. So so, so this problem has to be dealt with. Um, what, what did these researchers do? How, how, have, how have they contributed to um, making heat and damp proof perovskite solar cells?
1: Well, the damp problem is actually relatively easy to fix in some sense. You can put a waterproof coating on the material and, okay, that adds cost and it adds mass, which is a commercial drawback, but it does work. Heat is more difficult. And what this team of researchers did, um, they're at the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia. What they did is they um, sandwiched a highly photosensitive 3D perovskite material between two layers of 2D perovskites. So an N-type semiconductor layer on the top and a P-type semiconductor layer on the bottom. And now these 2D perovskites cope better with heat and humidity than the the 3D version. And by tailoring the dimensional fragments of these 2D layers, the the researchers got the 2D layers to form what's called a passivating top coat that protects the 3D perovskite blow from the weather. And they did this in an inverted configuration, that is with the N-type layer on top, which is the more efficient way of converting sunlight into electricity.
0: And, and so is that it? Um, are we going to be seeing the sort of wide-scale use of these more efficient perovskite solar cells on rooftops and in fields uh, around the world?
1: Well, I think it's definitely possible. Um, The solar cell they describe in their paper, which is published in Science, um, it had an initial power conversion efficiency of 24.3%, which is not the absolute maximum, um, but it's pretty good. And the key, though, is that after 1,000 hours in 85 degrees centigrade heat and 85% humidity it was still above 95% of the efficiency it started at, which is the industry standard test, and it passed that test. So I think this is definitely a key step towards getting commercial versions of this type of um, purely perovskite solar cell into, into a commercial product.
0: Well, that, that sounds promising. And um, you can read more about um, this on the website. Just look out for the headline, Perovskite Solar Cell Survives the Damp and Heat.
1: Okay, Hamish, your turn. You're going to talk about two stories from the world of particle physics. And I think the first one has to do with how cosmic neutrinos are detected. Uh, so first, you know, just remind me, what is a cosmic re- neutrino and how do people detect them?
0: Well, a cosmic neutrino, well, first of all, a ne- neutrino is a, um, is a particle that um, has no uh, electrical charge and it interacts um, very weakly with matter. Uh, and so that means that it can travel very large distances, both through space and, you know, through, through the Earth, um, without interacting. And a cosmic neutrino is a very high-energy neutrino that is produced by some sort of astrophysical process outside of the solar system, and then it makes its way to Earth. And astrophysicists are very keen on studying these uh, cosmic neutrinos because they could provide insights into mysterious high-energy objects such as blazars. And um, another key feature of cosmic neutrinos, which I, I touched on earlier, is that they travel in straight lines. And this is unlike um, photons or other cosmic ray particles. And the reason that they travel in straight lines is that they're not charged particles. And so they're not deflected by the uh, magnetic fields that exist in the universe. And this is really important for astrophysicists because it allows them to trace the neutrinos back to their distant origins and work out, um, you know, where these neutrinos came from. Now, cosmic neutrinos are observed in underground detectors like IceCube at the South Pole, and that uses a cubic kilometre of the Antarctic ice sheet to detect tiny flashes of light that occur when neutrinos occasionally interact with the ice. So, you know, detecting these cosmic neutrinos is really difficult, and it's a really big deal for physicists and astrophysicists.
1: Okay, but I understand there's been some suggestion that not all the so-called cosmic neutrinos detected by IceCube are actually of cosmic origin. What's going on there?
0: Yeah, well, physicists in Poland and Brazil have taken a look at IceCube data, along with uh, data from the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. And they've concluded that some of these very high-energy neutrinos that were detected by IceCube could have been created when high-energy cosmic rays interact with Earth's atmosphere. Physicists had not thought that that was a significant enough process to affect um, the IceCube observations.
1: Okay, well, well, what made them change their minds and decide to sort of re-examine this possibility?
0: Well, it all has to do with charm quarks. Um, th- this recent work suggests that protons and neutrons have a higher content of virtual charm quarks. Now, nor- normally, what we would well, think of protons and neutrons as containing just up and down quarks, but it turns out that they contain a virtual sea of quarks that pop in and out of existence. And these uh, physicists have calculated that there are more charm quarks, virtual charm quarks, than previously thought. And this, they say, makes it more likely that very high-energy neutrinos are created when cosmic rays smash into nuclei in the atmosphere. So it could be that some of those neutrinos already identified as cosmic neutrinos by IceCube, were created much, much closer to home.
1: That's really interesting. Um, It sounds like a a real challenge. Does that mean that experiments like IceCube will have to change how they interpret their data?
0: Well, possibly. Um, A a spokesperson from the experiment, um, however, said that this is likely to be a, a very small effect. And he also pointed out that the experiment is already set up to reject atmospheric neutrinos. So it could be that, you know, this, th- this study is just a very interesting bit of particle physics. And, uh, you know, who knows, it could, it could help us understand cosmic rays or the, the, the processes involved in creating high-energy neutrinos. But maybe it, it's not going to have such a big effect on how astrophysicists use high-energy neutrinos to, to study uh, the cosmos. And you can read more about this, again, on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Some Cosmic Neutrinos May Not Be Cosmic After All.
1: Okay, well, sticking with the particle physics aspect at the moment, I also see in the news that the, the W boson is much heavier than predicted by theory. What's going on with that?
0: Yes, this is a story that's interesting on a number of fronts. Physicists have reanalyzed data taken on the CDF experiment on the Tevatron Collider at Fermilab in the US. And this is a facility that's been shut down for more than a decade. So, you know, I think this is fascinating in itself, that uh, that data that was taken a long time ago can still turn up very interesting results.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, CDF, that's really a, na- a blast from the past sort of name. I thought, yeah, as you said, it had been shut down for years. It's, it is as, to say, as you say, it's amazing that it's producing new results still.
0: Yeah, still, still lots of data, I suppose, to be analyzed and reanalyzed using new techniques. And, and what they've found is they've found that the mass of the W boson is about, I think, about 0.08% larger than predicted by the standard model of particle physics. Now, Now, that might not sound like much, but the result actually has a very large statistical significance. So it really does suggest that there's something wrong with our understanding of the physics of the W boson.
1: Okay, so at this point, you know, you might be useful to remind me and your and our listeners what the W boson does actually and why some sort of small discrepancy in its mass matters.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, a- along with the Z boson, the-, the W boson mediates weak force interactions, su- such as those that cause beta decay, which is a type of-, of nuclear decay that has been studied for a very long time. So, so the W boson plays a crucial role in particle and nuclear interactions but i suppose the interesting thing about it and the the z boson is that unlike the photon which is the boson that mediates the electromagnetic interaction it has mass in fact the the z boson and the w boson are heavier than iron nuclei so these these, these are some pretty amazing particles um and b- because physicists know it has mass Um, They've done experiments that show this. Um, They have used experimental data along with the standard model to sort of calculate what this mass should be. And uh, the discrepancy, you know, the difference between what they've measured and uh, what they calculate is important because the standard model does not provide a complete description of particle physics. I mean, for example, it doesn't explain why there's much more matter than antimatter in the universe. And the hope is that by studying holes in the model, for example, its inability to predict the mass of the W boson, physicists will be able to find a, a route to a new and improved theory of particle physics. And so what's happening right now Uh, is that physicists all over the world are currently working very hard at coming up with new theories that can explain this mass excess. And the hope is that um, one of these theories will actually pan out and could, you know, sort of break particle physics wide open and give us a new and, you know, sort of amazing understanding of the universe um, I mean, we can only hope. I mean, I have to say that that there are lots and lots of problems with the standard model. You know, physicists find them all the time. And the hope every time is that that particular problem will lead to a, a major breakthrough. And, you know, sadly, that hasn't happened yet.
1: Yeah, fingers crossed, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the the other thing is that there's absolutely no reason why experiments at the LHC or Tevatron or anywhere else will, you know, come up with with, with that major breakthrough, because we we don't really know um, when and where we're going to encounter a, 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 a problem with the standard model that will open the door. You know, it could, be, it could be in the next run of the LHC, or, you know, we might have to wait hundreds of years building bigger and bigger and more energetic um, colliders until we actually come up with that one thing. But, you know, that's science, and um, this is exciting, and who knows, this could be the one. Yeah. Well,
1: keep knocking on enough doors, maybe one of them will open. Excellent.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And once again, you can read more about um, this surprisingly heavy W boson on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, W boson mass measurement surprises physicists. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Margaret.
1: You're welcome, Hamish.
0: Quantum systems that use ultra-cold atoms are extremely sensitive to environmental factors such as stray magnetic fields, or even Earth's gravity. This can pose significant experimental challenges to physicists studying quantum systems, but it also offers an opportunity to create quantum sensors with unparalleled performance. Recently, researchers at the UK's University of Birmingham used an ultra-cold gas of atoms to detect minute deviations in Earth's gravity, allowing them to map out a small underground tunnel on the university campus. To explain how they did it and how their system could find practical applications, I'm joined down the line from Birmingham by Michael Linsky, Ben Stray, Andrew Lamb, and Kai Bongs. Hi, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hello. Hi. Hello.
0: So Mike, can you explain in simple terms how your quantum gravity sensor works? Yeah, sure. So in our
2: experiment, what we do is we take a cloud of atoms. We cool them down using lasers, we make them very cold, get them down to microkelvin temperatures where each of the individual atoms in the cloud is moving around at rather than the speed of a jet plane as atoms in the room around you might be moving, moving more like centimetres per second. And what we do then is we drop them, we let them fall. And while they're falling, we probe them using laser beams. So if I just think about one individual atom as it's falling down, we shine a pulse of light on that atom and we tune that pulse of light very precisely. We control its duration, so how long we apply the pulse for, the intensity of the pulse, and the frequency of the pulse. And we tune those parameters so that it's just right that the atom has a 50% chance of absorbing some light. And when that happens, if it absorbs the light, it receives some energy, takes the energy from the light, and it receives some momentum, so it gets a little kick from the light. But what happens, because we're working with atoms here, is if we tune that probability to be 50%, then after the pulse, the atom exists in a superposition where it has both received and not received that energy and momentum at the same time. And if we do that in the vertical direction, so they're falling down, we shine the laser beam along the vertical direction and create that energy and momentum difference in that direction, then afterwards we have a superposition where the two uh, parts of the atomic wave function start to move apart slowly over time. And what that does is we see those evolve, and after some amount of time, we shine another pulse of light onto the um, atom that starts to bring those two back, to, starts to cause them to move back towards each other, for finally shining a third pulse on, which overlaps them again. And this is really exciting, because what we have now is very similar to an optical interferometer. Now, in an optical interferometer, what we do is we take a beam of light, for example, shine that through a um, beam splitter. So something that causes the light to travel along two paths and then use mirrors and a final beam splitter to redirect the beams and overlap them again at the end of the uh, output of the interferometer. And then by looking at the output, we can see whether the waves that make up the light beam add constructively or destructively. And if I were to, for example, make one of those two paths in the interferometer a little bit longer or a little bit shorter, I'd see that constructive or destructive interference change depending on how the waves added together. And so we, what we see some interference at the, the output of in the interferometer. But now, in the um, atom case, we have the same thing, and it's something we'd call an atom interferometer. So. Those, those atoms, we can also think of as being waves moving around an in interferometer and recombining at the end. But now what's really exciting is because those two waves are traveling at slightly different heights, because we're doing all of this in the vertical direction and we're splitting them with some momentum at the beginning, some mass underneath the instrument would pull two paths slightly differently because it's a slightly different distance away. And that means that that mass is changing the two paths differently, allowing us to see a phase change due to, due to gravity and change whether we have constructive or destructive interference on the end of the interferometer, allowing us to make very precise measurements. And that's very similar to using the laser as a ruler to measure how they fall. But the problem we have is that even if we can do that with any measurement of gravity, If I have some vibration, that will shake the system. And in our case, what that would do is effectively shake the laser or shake that ruler. And it creates a noise that really limits how gravity sensors work and how quickly you can use them. And the really important thing about our sensor is that we try to overcome that problem. And what we do there is we use actually, rather than one interferometer, two interferometers separated by some distance. So we'd have... That exact process I was just talking to you about at one height and then another above it, about roughly a meter in our case above it. And we use the same laser beam to read them out. So simultaneously, we'll perform that process on two clouds of atoms at two different heights. And as we can think of that laser ruler as being perfectly stiff, we when we shake that, the shaking is the same for both of the two interferometers, meaning the vibration is really the same. If we measure the, di- if we then take the difference of the reading rather than looking at the absolute values, the vibration is subtracted because it's the same for both, but we still keep the gravity gradient information because the two interferometers are slightly different heights. And this allows us to really take out one of the biggest noise sources that you see in gravity measurements. And what's really exciting about what we've done in the paper is this is an approach that has been pioneered and used in, in other labs as well, but we're the first ones to really take it out into the field. and use it to find something under the ground.
0: And Ben, how did you take... The, this system out into the field. Um, um, you know, I've done a bit of work years ago with um, uh, a uh, vacuum system and you know, it was difficult enough to, uh, to operate inside a lab where we could control everything. Um, so, so how did you create and manipulate uh, this ultra-cold atomic gas outdoors and, and trundle it around to, uh, to look for a tunnel? What were sort of the challenges that you had to overcome?
3: Yeah. So when we typically think of cold atom laboratory systems, we're, we're thinking of a a sort of sprawling optical table, uh, like you say, with like giant vacuum systems, uh, and a well controlled environment. So typically air conditioned, uh, we've got, as we said, all these free space lasers. So you've got all this tunability, uh, and the idea for a laboratory system is that you can control everything. So in a sort of static way as well. So the real challenge is how do we package something like that into a a form factor that's both portable, so something that that between two people is what we've aimed aimed for, that we can uh, pick it up and move it, uh, while retaining the the sensitivity and the function. So what we've made is still a research instrument, so we need to be able to still control all of these different parameters, and that sort of comes on to to the first challenge, which is really integration. so how do we package the subsystems so the different lasers? uh we've opted to use telecommunications laser systems, so a frequency double telecoms laser system is is an all in fiber laser w- which uh, removes some of that sort of free space uh the problems that come with free space lasers um but also gives us loads of benefits for for robustness so. Um, In principle, we could pick up and drop our laser system and it would stay locked, um, which is quite useful for going outdoors. Um, But yeah, we still need to retain this flexibility. So all of the subsystems are generally home-built, using off-the-shelf parts and packaging them in a way that really works for us. Uh, Then when it comes to things like the vacuum system, We've had to, and the sensor head itself, uh, almost everything in there is is a custom design or certainly an adapted piece. Um, so, let's take the, the vacuum system. We, we've we got this hourglass configuration uh, with these two counter-orientated magnet to optical traps. So, this is how we're uh, creating these clouds of cold atoms. Uh, and what we've done is we've uh, had custom uh, vacuum chambers machined, uh, basically to try and minimize things like size and weight. So, we have to be able to move this system. What we've done is, uh, instead of using things like um, conflat viewports or, or similar, uh, we've actually opted to narrow the chamber diameter and seal the windows using a technique called indium sealing. Uh, what this allows you to do is then take uh, a vacuum flange that can often take up sort of several centimetres of thickness and really bring it down to just the size of the viewport, so five millimetres or so, uh, depending on what you've got. And that really enables you to uh, increase your detection solid angle uh, and importantly for us, retain all of the vacuum requirements, so things like pumps, um, but in a much more compact form factor. So with the rest of the uh, sensor head, we again have, uh, due to this sort of integration and compactness requirement, uh, a lot of things like custom electronics. Um, so things like our detection photodiodes are designed in such a way that they're um, sort of everything's going vertical on the PCB just to to prevent any uh, any additional radial distance. And then we have uh, our sort of characteristic big blue tube shape. So that's coming from our, our magnetic shields. So part of our environment, uh, environmental control. So the, the next sort of challenge for us then once we've got an integrated system that we can uh, still sort of control everything we need to control uh, is making sure that it's robust. So taking things outside uh, poses a very different challenge to, to lab operation. Uh, typically, in the laboratory, you would never expect to move your experiment, uh, and it should, if done right, remain stationary, uh, but that goes very much against thought of the goals of what we're trying to achieve here. So a lot of the work goes into good engineering practices, so a lot of mechanical uh, work to make sure it's we've got a really stiff frame. Uh, so the, the two cloud centers, for example, shouldn't move relative to each other, even when you've physically move the system uh another example is things like the the beam alignment so we've had to make sure that our our optical delivery through a pair of telescopes is it, immune to sort of alignment drift and alignment problems so a lot of work goes into uh working on the mechanical engineering to make sure that we're robust against uh, things and shocks so some of the testing we do is uh, a bit more sort of violent than we w- would like with a with a, a laboratory system. So it's picking up, moving it around, giving it a good shake, just to make sure that nothing's coming loose or drifting over time. And we're we're trying to reduce things like tear and repeatable to make sure that we have repeatable measurements. Um, as I briefly mentioned as well, we need to be uh, shielded against the environment. So that sort of all weather conditions, rain and wind. uh, We've been out in snow with it before. Uh, We have to basically be able to to deal with those sorts of conditions Um, as well as things like magnetic fields. So there's lots of stray magnetic fields everywhere you go. Things like um, underground, like ironworks, uh, cars and trucks and things that drive past. Uh, all have uh, a magnetic field associated with them, and without uh, additional shielding for for our rubidium system, um, that would sort of it affect the measurement. So part of the robustness then is removing these environmental and therefore the systematic shifts that you would see uh, on the atoms, and therefore on the on the measurement of the gravity. Um, it, in a way that we can basically yeah c- control for them. Uh, and remove them where possible. So we tried to design out as many of our problems. So the third challenge we have, and that's the one that um, I think most people tend to have, uh, is to do with diagnostics. So we've got this system that we've integrated as as well as we can. Uh, How do we know we're measuring the right thing? So, as I mentioned, We've got a lot of custom parts with our, our things to measure the the atoms themselves. So making sure that we're um, we're measuring these these state populations. So how much of the atom is in one state or the other. Uh, but there's a lot of other things that go on as well. So measuring magnetic fields, for example, uh, within the sensor, um, just to make sure there's not anything leaking through, um, as well as um, alternative things like the, the sort of tilt of the instrument is it on a soft material and is it sort of sinking or tilting over um, we need to basically be able to have an idea of what's going on with the system at all times and use that to make sure we really understand we're measuring what we think we're measuring and have we measured enough data
0: so, so it sounds like you you had to uh, create uh, a c- quite a bit of a custom uh instrumentation to 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 make this possible so so andrew um how can you commercialize this what would have to be done to um to turn your sensor into a practical device that could be used by people who aren't expert in manipulating ultra cold atomic gases
4: so that's a great question Uh, and it's actually an area we're actively pursuing uh with regards to how do we take the research and in well not even in lab out of lab successes of our device and turn it into something which could be a product Uh, and that comes down to a few questions of what you mean by commercialization so there are a few very critical issues independent of area there is one which is the user interface so these interfaces are not designed for the average person to work with Uh, they are fairly complicated uh, coding scripts that we have learned to run and then once the data is ran out we have learned how to interpret the data one fairly critical step to moving this towards a product is taking this and moving it more towards a turnkey solution so the sort of thing where you can take it turn it on press a button and you just get a number out the end that's not something we yet have and that is an area where we will need to work with Uh, software and electronics engineers to develop the capability in addition to end users and engineers like we have done through the entire project. All of this work has been done with engineers uh, uh, as partners, but to learn how to interpret the data in a useful way, we need their input. So part of this comes from the commercialization of the techniques, but then it also comes down to what do we do with the actual sensor? So we're in the process of trying to take these sensors, which are very large. I think the total mass of the system that was used in the paper was something like 400 kilograms between the sensor and the laser system. We need to downsize this. So we're currently in the process of investigating more compact systems for both the vacuum and the laser. Uh, On the laser side, we're investigating how we can take a uh, a single arm and try and manipulate that to do everything that we need from all of the laser cooling onto the interrogation and the gravitational measurement. And on the, the vacuum side, we're trying to scale down this, this technique. So we're taking this hourglass uh, configuration, which uh, Ben has just talked about, and we're trying to say, how can we take this down into a smaller form factor? And the fortunate thing about that smaller form factor is it also brings in it brings in new application areas and application areas where it really a lot of the crux comes in. If you have a small and sensitive system, you can start to think about, can I deploy it onto, uh, a drone for automatic operation? Can I deploy it just to a, a single individual they can carry around? And in some cases, can I even use this in uh, in environments where there may be a risk to life? So think about, say, so defense applications, so finding uh, uh, in, improvised explosive devices. Or if you think about border control, uh, you can have a situation there where it's a much larger there's no, not the same size requirements, but there's an increased sensitivity requirements, you can scale it up. So what we need to do is we need to understand the application area that we want to work in and then design a sensor in the same way we did here, design a sensor specifically for the application area. So as it stands currently, the Hourglass configuration and some of the other enabling techniques that we have uh, developed are actually protected under patents or patents pending at the moment. Uh, and we're looking to utilize those in a business environment. So when you when you have a better understanding of your application area, you can defi- you can build these sensors for their purpose. So if you have a area where sensitivity is of a lower requirement, but size, weight, and power of a higher requirement, you can design for that. If you have a area where your sensitivity is a higher requirement, but size weight and power is a lower, you can design for that. Uh, and you can do anywhere in between. It is a very fortunate spectrum where we can tune the device for the application that we need. And something which you definitely touched on in your question is uh, the bespoke nature of these systems. So the problem is that a lot of these have been designed and manufactured for a specific purpose in mind. They are one-offs. We need to find ways of developing these into things where they can be manufactured on MASH. We need to be able to scale them into new application areas. And some of that comes down to our design techniques. Can we take these uh, rather than using the conflict flanges that Ben talked about? For the window sealing techniques, indium sealing uh, indium is a very high skill approach. So it needs training to develop. Can we find a way to do away with this? Uh, can we find a way to make a mass manufacture of our vacuum systems? Can we develop a, a process for building and testing our laser systems? All of these are critical steps towards, it, towards commercialization. And then finally, when it comes to commercialization, it's a question of what are you selling? Are you selling the devices? are you renting the devices or are you selling the service so we could sell the devices to people that want to do surveys themselves or we could we could rent the service of we take a device that we have built and maintain and move that into into the field and sell the data that comes from that and that becomes a case of what do you then need as part of your uh, commercialization You can either do just the manufacture, or you can then integrate some of the engineering and the applied side and develop that as a service as well.
0: So Mike, Andrew um, touched on applications. What do you see as some early uses um, of this sensor?
2: Yeah, thanks for the question. So while the sensor is is interesting, I think um, some of the applications that we really want to move towards are really exciting. And what really um, I find, Drives me in in the work that we're doing is everyone that we involve in building these sensors is really interested in doing something a little bit different with it. So, the the nice step that we have is um, with the sensor we've made, it can get rid of this vibration noise, which is what really makes gravity measurements impractical, slows them down so it's not quick to do surveys. They're very important when you can do them, but they they cost a lot more money than one would hope. So, the, the key thing is removing that and unlocking a range of applications. Now, Early um, early applications, this is something we have done. So this development we've made is something we've done hand-in-hand with engineers from from the outset. So we've really been working with civil engineers to help understand how can we build something that can be a new tool for looking under roads or helping to monitor infrastructure. So, for example, if I was trying to find a damaged pipe under a roadway, that could be leaking water into the environment that creates an erosion feature leading to something like a sinkhole. If we can now make it faster to survey other roads so that you don't have to shut them down for a long time in order to survey or to stop people having to dig into the road and create road congestion, if we can make the survey fast enough. We might be able to find, well, actually, this specific place is where you need to intervene and um, really reduce the amount of roadworks needed and prevent things like sinkholes from happening. And that's one of the first applications we're really looking at. So on the commercial side, that could see a real benefit economically. But there are, there are others. And so we, we're really interested in things like, can we look under um, archaeological sites? So in the past, we've been working with um, archaeologists archaeologists sorry, who are really interested in, you know, how can we have a new tool for looking deeper uh, underneath these sites? Of course, we can't dig. If I was thinking about a site like Stonehenge, I can't dig there because I'd risk damaging the site. Gravity sensing could be a way of looking deeper under those sites course, that's very complementary with other sensing techniques. So this isn't something that's going to mean we don't need to do other types of sensing. It's more a very valuable new additional data set. Um, So I think some of the early applications are really looking into the ground and helping people find things in the ground. And for example, a few weeks ago, I was talking to the Geospatial Commission, who are now starting to build a national underground asset register. And we could see our sensors starting to contribute to that, starting to add new data to that and help people really work in the underground space in a better way but some um, other applications we could see would be um, starting to move into things like navigation so if I have a um, a map of what gravity looks like in my environment and I'm on a vehicle like could be a subsea um, autonomous vehicle that's looking for things like underground cables or helping with um, maintenance on rigs that kind of thing sometimes they don't have All of the tools they need to navigate and they don't have good access to things like GPS. And if they can measure um, their local gravitation environment, they can position themselves on a gravity map, helping them have GPS um, resilient navigation. So that's another application that we see coming in the near, in the near future. Kai, maybe would you like to add um, some things from your side? Uh,
5: yes. So, in terms of the applications, I'm particularly excited about uh, are yeah, also like in addition to the infrastructure, the more geophysics uh, applications. Of course, if you go very deep, you might see magma movements and can help with predictions on volcanic eruptions or earthquakes. Uh, but much closer to the surface, uh, the groundwater um, is something which uh, is is a real gap in our knowledge. Uh, so if we have flood models, uh, they include all kinds of inputs, but we don't have visibility of like groundwater movements uh, unless we like do boreholes and measure these in in like wells, which is very very uh, ineffective, uh, or at least very uh, it takes a lot of effort. Um, and Providing that additional input uh, like might have a lot in the UK with flooding, but in other countries with droughts, and so we just started in an d- international network on using quantum sensors for the sustainability goals, where we are particularly looking at natural disasters, droughts, flooding, uh, where like seeing can we really make a difference um, in like helping like attack some of these big uh, goals of humanity?
0: and and kai um beyond this project what others atom based technologies are are you and your colleagues developing in birmingham
5: so yeah i should say this is part of a wider uk uh initiative uh which is the uk national quantum technology program where uh, this uh gravity gradient work is part of uh, the first uh, application work package, the geophysics work package of the UK National Quantum Technology Hub in Census and Timing, which is a collaboration uh, led by the University of Birmingham with the universities of uh, John Moore, Liverpool, Glasgow, Imperial College, London, Nottingham, Southampton, Stressglide, Sussex, and uh, in collaboration with British Geological Survey and the National Physical Laboratory. So in addition to the geophysics goals, where we are also looking into things like uh, with British Geological Survey, uh, uh, into things like carbon sequestration. Uh, Can we monitor that using gravity signatures? we are also uh, having a work package which is aimed at healthcare applications, where uh, like the Hub universities are developing quantum magnetometers and building quantum magnetoencephalography systems, uh, which can observe uh, the tiny magnetic fields originating from brain function. Uh, so you can start monitoring how the brain works in a very flexible way, much more flexible than current technologies, so that you can observe uh, like brain function from childhood to adult in the critical development phases, um, you can uh, applications uh, you can do it while moving around, and applications include uh, brain health conditions like trauma or epilepsy, and we hope to get into schizophrenia and dementia and child concentration deficits, so that a whole endless range of brain health conditions, which really cost the econo- economy a large amount of money, and of course are a big societal factor in, in well-being. Uh, so quantum sensors can make a big change to that there has been huge success, uh, which led uh, into uh, to the development of a startup between University of Nottingham and Magnetic Shield Limited, which is called Circa, which now commercializes these quantum magnetoencephalography systems. And several other hub universities are also developing the sensors, because once we in different guises of sensors are using them for, for instance, for monitoring our electric car batteries um, or also um, in the future, we might dream of having once we've understood the brain function, having brain machine interfaces to steer uh, like dangerous machinery or yeah, possibly our computer games of the future so that we don't have to like use our hands for that and uh, can eat the chips meanwhile or so. Um, so Uh, Another application area uh, is um, timing applications where we're working uh, closely with National Physical Laboratory to set up uh, ultra low phase noise oscillators and very precise uh, quantum clocks. which go into radar systems. So we work with the radar engineers and the aim is there with the quantum oscillator, these radars start to be able to see much more signal in the noise um, of uh, like very cluttered environments. So the aim is here to enable future flight, uh, packet delivery drones in cities, flying taxis in cities where you have lots of scattering elements, which otherwise would clutter uh, a normal radar system. And the quantum oscillator might make this sufficiently uh, noise. that you can start uh, making sure all these uh, are nicely supervised in the city and you get uh, the information you need to keep the life safe in future flight, urban flight scenarios. Um, Final work package, and Mike already alluded to that, is navigation, uh, where we are aiming at uh, bringing actually several quantum sensor types together, the gravity radiometers, magnetic radiometers, um, inertial uh, sensors, accelerometers and rotation sensors to build a navigation system system, uh, which allows to navigate uh, in GNSS denied environments or just resilient of satellite navigation systems, uh, which is actually affecting 7% roughly of uh, the GDP of any civilized nation. Uh, So it's a huge impact if that uh, goes um, missing as a signal. And it's very easily jammed or spoofed. And so there's a lot of concern. And quantum technology can make like position navigation and timing extremely resilient and uh yeah essentially safe uh like secure our infrastructure uh, versus uh yeah like things like solar flares or uh, like attacks
0: wow that, that that's really interesting it sounds like you've definitely got your work um cut out for you at Birmingham over the next few years and you can read more about um this gravity sensor on the physics world website. Just look for the headline, Quantum Gravity Gradient Sensor Used Outdoors to Find Tunnel. Thanks to all of you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Margaret Harris, Mike Kolinsky, Ben Stray, Andrew Lamb, and Kai Bongs. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks to physicists and engineers about the latest breakthrough in fusion research and how they're working to make commercial fusion energy a reality. The episode is called Jet's Record Result and the Quest for Fusion Energy. And you can listen to it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider.
5: Physics World.